We are continuing on with our study in 1 John, um, and we've entitled this series, Life Transforming Knowledge, Bursting Forth in Fellowship, Joy, and Confidence. Another way of saying that is John really believes, and if you read his book with a sense of um, humility and a sense of openness and, and Lord, please teach me, um, this book, to put it in um, simple teenage language, it's, it kicks our butt. Um, John means business, and he's dealing with a church at that time period, about maybe 75, 80 AD, that, that appears to look very similar to the church that looked today. And so he's dealing with some issues that we have to internalize and, and take to heart. Um, life-transforming knowledge. If you truly know what John is trying to teach us, then you can't help but lead a different life. It transforms you. We're going to look this morning at 1 John chapter 2, <coughs> verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 10. And as I mentioned earlier, I've asked Henry if he would uh, read the scripture for us, so please do that. Uh, but as, we've, as we meditate on the passage that we just read, we all know somebody in our history or someone in the news who has been a part of the Christian faith, and not only just a part of it, but they were a leader within the Christian faith, and then at some point, they fall away. We have just recently, over the last few months, watched, and I just read some more articles this week, he's back in the news, uh, of a young pastor who wrote a book about I kissed dating goodbye. A, a young man by the name of uh, Joshua Harris who wrote that book, I think, when he was 18 or 19 years old and appeared to be an incredibly mature, young Christian man. And it was just a few months ago that he came to the conclusion, A, that he didn't want to be married to his wife anymore and the mother of his three or four children, and B, Everything that he believed that defined him as a Christian, or anyone else for that matter, he concluded, and he says this, when I conclude, or when I looked at everything that defines a Christian, I no longer fit that description. And so he's abandoned his wife, he's abandoned not his children, but he's abandoned the faith of Christ. And so we see in the passage that, we just, that Henry just read for us this morning, People like Joshua Harris, who would say some of the things that we're going to say, or that, that John says in this passage. I just have two truths that I want to pull out of the passage this morning for us to take home. That there are so many things that we could look at, but when you try to say everything, you end up saying nothing. And so we're just going to focus on, on two short truths. And that first truth is this, <coughs> true children of God true children of God actively remain in him and in his truth. Now remember, John has written this book to a group of churches in the area of Ephesus. And some heresy, some false teaching have started to creep into the church. And John is addressing those issues for that specific audience and one of the issues that is creeping in that were these false teachers who had walked into the church that were saying, Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not the Son of God. 
And so they were denying Jesus' divinity. They were denying the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the whole Old Testament was pushing towards. They were simply teaching these people he was just a good man who maybe performed some miracles, maybe, maybe not. He said a lot of really good things. He was a great moral teacher, but he was not divine. He was not the true Son of God. And so John labels these, these folks. In verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard <coughs> that that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And so he gives us two different categories right there. He talks about that Antichrist who's coming, and he's not referring to the people who are the false teachers in that church at that moment. He is not referring to them as the Antichrist, but rather he uses the word plural. And so he's referring to that these folks are some Antichrist in lieu of, in, in preparation for the true Antichrist to come. And then so you have to sit back, and if you read that verse, and if you stop and you go, well, then what is an Antichrist? And he tells us in verse 22, this is John's definition of what an Antichrist is. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And that Greek word, he is the anointed one. He is the one that God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus is the one that the Father said, on him I am setting apart my special anointing that he is going to be the Messiah. And so the definition of an antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Then he says, this is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and denies the Son. Um, And so we see true children of God And there's two things there that I threw into that. True children of God remain in Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not only do we remain in Him, we remain in His truth. You can't separate. Now, the modern-day equivalent of this is we live in a world today where people love to talk about Jesus. And they love the fact and they value the fact and they even attempt to emulate the fact that Jesus was a man who loved well. And so because of that, I want to love well. I want, to some extent, I want to be like Jesus. Remember the braces. What would Jesus do? Well, that's what I want to do. But bow the knee to him as the son of God? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. And so even today, much like then, we have people inside the church um, who are looking at Jesus, the Son of God, and they're denying his divinity when they say Jesus is just one of many options to get to God the Father. He may be the best option, but he's not the only one. And when we do that, we are denying um, who he is as the Son of God. C.S. Lewis probably said this better than absolutely anyone. And, you've, and I know there were others before him who said this similar thing, who presented um, what's known as the trilemma um, in history. 
And so there are other guys who've said this, but C.S. Lewis takes it and he says it, in a way, says it in a way that we've heard before and we're familiar, but it's good for our ears to hear it again. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so those three, C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord who he says he is. He can't be all three. Um, it's interesting, these deceivers, these antichrists in this passage, they are denying that Jesus is the Son of God, and then not only that, they're trying to deceive the rest of the children of God into believing what they believe. What's interesting to me is we're told in verse um, 19, they went out from among us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that, that not all are of us. And so this is one of the, one of the first tests. What, what makes somebody who's flirting with this? Well, quite simply, it's someone who says, Everybody in the church is believing this, but I'm going to take my teaching and I'm going to go elsewhere because I don't agree with any of you. And so God, in, his, in some of what, in his mercy to his church, he purifies it and he sends, he allows them to go out and to depart. So we're reminded again, what is that, what's that truth that we're to learn from this passage? True children remain in him True children remain in him, but they also remain in his truth. And so we see towards the end of that first section, um, this word abide that comes over and over. That the true children of God abide or remain in him. We're told that Christians abide in the anointed one. Did you catch that? We're actually told that in, in the passage that, we're, that we just read. If you are a true child of God, you abide in the anointed one by means of his anointing you. And so there's this word play. Our God-given anointing enables our true confession of Jesus as the Christ. To be a Christian is to be christened into Christ. And so he uses these words interchangeably and over that you are anointed by the anointed one and because you are anointed in the anointed one, you now have the ability to abide in him. 
And he's using it in a way that is interchangeable, that it is not an option. It's, it's not something that you would choose or not choose. It just automatically happens that if as a child of God, if he has anointed you to become a child of his, then you automatically abide or remain in him and in his truth. Um, It's popular to use this word today, anointing, in the sense of when we listen to a singer or a really charismatic, great uh, commander of the pulpit to say that, man, they have an anointing on them. And when they say that, that means there's just... There's this extra special awareness of God's presence or power in that person. And that's a, that's a modern day view of what it means to be anointed. They've just got something extra special in them. But if you study the scriptures and if you look at that word anointing, what it really means is just simply that that person has been set apart for a special purpose. And all all John is trying to say here, if you're a child of God, you have been anointed by the anointed one, by Jesus the Messiah, who has placed inside you this seed that you are a child of God. And if you are a true child of God, you, you will, John is saying in this passage, you will remain in him and in his truth. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 1 where he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and he has anointed us. He has put his seal on us and he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This anointing that that John is talking about if you're a true child of God, you have this in you. It, it is this Holy Spirit inside you that serves as an internal defense mechanism that when you hear something that's not biblical, you back away from it. We live in a world where we want to uphold and value this, this notion of tolerance. And John is painting a picture here True children of God are not tolerant with those who teach something that that stands in opposition of the Scriptures. And if you have an anoint, this, this anointing, not this special awareness, but if you if you've been touched by God as his child, then you have that internal defense mechanism that says that is not biblical. Now, is John getting, is he wanting us to argue over infant baptism or adult baptism? No. It's healthy to discuss it. But that's not, he's talking about core essential doctrines of the faith that change the faith if you say something to be true. And when you claim that Jesus is not the Son of God, you are saying the Christian faith is not true. We need to move on real quickly. Truth number two in this passage is true children of God actively fight against sin and practice righteousness. 
true children of God actively fight against sin and practice righteousness. And when you hear that point or, or that truth, there's part of us. We've been trained because we're so geared towards it's all about grace. It's all about grace. We've been so geared that God does it. God does it. We, we just simply... And when we hear that point that, that John is telling us, you have to actively fight against sin. And not only fight against sin by pushing it away, you need to pursue righteousness. That makes us nervous and it scares us. But, but just listen to some of these verses again that we read in chapter 3. Verse 3, Everyone who thus hopes in Him, Jesus, everyone who hopes in Him purifies Himself. And He is pure. In verse 6, no one who abides or remains in Jesus keeps on sinning. And remember, in the Greek, that, the tense of that verb is no one keeps on sinning and keeps on sinning and keeps on sinning and keeps on sinning with no sense of repentance. That, our English language doesn't have that verb. And so when he says here, no one who abides or remains in Jesus keeps on sinning forever without a sense of repentance. And then he says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7 and 8, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Did you hear that? It is biblical. John is painting this picture that we are to practice righteousness as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice, he's playing on words, whoever makes a practice of sinning, they're of the devil. I, I, I didn't make this up. This is in that passage. And then lastly, I just want to look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you know what John's trying to do here in this passage? I, I think he's trying to do a couple things. A, I think he's trying to scare the heck out of his audience. There's no way if you are a true child of God that you could read those verses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. There's no way that you couldn't read those verses and at least question to some degree in your mind, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a Christian. I don't measure up to what he's saying here. And if you're doing that, that's good. That's the first sign that you are a Christian. And then I think, John, what he's wanting us to do is to run back to Jesus. Remember, he starts the whole book off in verse, verse 9 that we are to confess our sins and that God is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, thus making us righteous still. Would you agree that how people in the Reformed tradition thought about the faith back in the 16th and 17th and 18th century, would you agree that they thought about the faith a little bit differently than how we today think about the faith? Some of, it was, some of it's good and needs to be brought, 
back into our cultural mindset. Some of it we need to do away with it. But I, I come across something from Richard Baxter in the 17th century who wrote um, his biography entitled The Reformed Pastor. And in this, he poses two questions that he himself goes through. And I just want to read them to you. Um, and I hope that does in you what it did in me. First, can you truly say that all, that all of the known sins of your past life are the grief of your heart and that you have felt that everlasting misery is due to you for them and that under a sense of this heavy burden, you have felt yourself a lost man and have gladly entertained the news of a Savior and cast your soul upon Christ alone for the pardon by his blood. Did you see what Richard Baxter is willing to do for just a few seconds? He's willing to sit under the weight of his past and current sins and say, am I grieving those or are they just, yeah, whatever. And in his grief for those sitting under that weight, notice what he immediately does. And cast your soul upon Christ alone. Run, run to him and rest in him. Here's the second question that, that he asked. Can you truly say that your heart is so far turned from sin that you hate the sins which you once have loved and that you now love that holy life which you had no mind to before and that you do not now live in the willful practice of any known sin? Is, is there no sin which you are not heartily willing to forsake whatever it costs you in no duty which you are not willing to perform. So this begs the question, can somebody live in, in a state of habitual sin? And the answer is yes. We see in Romans chapter 7, Paul himself is wrestling with the things that I don't want to do, I do them. And the things I, don't, or I, I want to do, I don't do them. And so there is this, this sense throughout all of Scripture that you, we are going to continue to sin. And that's why Paul continues to extend. There's forgiveness available. His grace is abundant. But John is, John is holding something up that must be held together with that, and that's this idea, sin matters to God. Holiness and living and righteousness matters to God. Um, like Paul, John is not setting before us, please hear this, John is not setting before us a terrifying perfectionism. It's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to convince you that unless you're perfect, you're not a child of God. That's not what he's doing. What John is demanding is a life which is ever on the watch against sin. A life in which sin is not the normal accepted way, but it's the abnormal moment of defeat. Did, did you hear that? He wants us to be on the watch where sin is not just the normal, accepted way. This is just how I live. This is what I do. It's how I roll. He's, he's, John is trying to get that audience because they were embracing sin and, and either pushing away Jesus or just claiming grace as they jumped into sin head first over and over and over. John is not um, aiming us with this terrifying perfection. He's not wanting us to see sin as just something accepted. 
but something as an abnormal moment of defeat. Here's the simple takeaway. By abiding, by abiding in Christ through prayer and his word, pursue holiness. By abiding in Christ through prayer and his word, pursue holiness. You, you can't do it. And then, unless his grace is working in you, and in those moments that you do have great success and you are obedient, it's, you, we have to step backwards and say, it wasn't because of me and my self-discipline, it was because of His grace that worked in me. Philippians 2.13, where we're told fear and tremble. But oh, by the way, it's his, it's his grace that gives you the desire to do that and then the ability. Abide in Christ through prayer and his word and then pursue holiness. And how do you pursue holiness? You repent, you return back to him, and you rejoice. You repent, you return, and you rejoice. And you rejoice in the fact that I am a child of God who has been counted worthy by the only one who can do so. And I'm counted worthy because of his grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for loving us when we are not lovable. Thank you for planting within us the desire to practice righteousness and then giving us the ability to do it. Father, would you help us to not quench the Spirit, but when you do whisper and when you do lead and govern us, would you help us to respond with obedience? for your sake and for your glory. Father, help us to live in such a way that the world looks at us and they see something different and they glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.